You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Well, good evening, everybody. Look at all you beautiful faces. Uh, Disky Gecko, I have to say that's my favorite name so far. Welcome, welcome one and all to City Lights Live. The uh, amazing virtual reading series that's continuing in the footsteps of our dear, dear in-store uh, calendar during this lockdown. Um, so we're really happy that you're all here. Welcome. Uh, we are, we're continuing to celebrate the works of authors that we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums throughout the month of May and into July. We're going all high tech. Uh, so to learn more about uh, our upcoming events, please visit us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're on all of them now. And um, our events are also listed on the City Lights website. So you may also subscribe to our newsletter to receive weekly updates. Tonight's featured books um, are gonna be available for purchase on the link we're gonna, we'll be texting to you on the screen during tonight's event. It may be purchased at any time during the reading and after via our retail portal at bookshop.org. As you all know, bookshop.org is doing some wonderful support for uh, the independent bookstores out there. So definitely uh, buy the book through them. And uh, tonight on City Lights Live, we are indeed delighted to have with us tonight, um, Catherine Silver and Mario Javier Cardenas in an evening of discussion between a master translator and an award-winning novelist, celebrating the works of Carlos Onetti and Julio Ramon Riberio. Uh, the books that we're celebrating uh, tonight are A Dream Come True, The Complete Stories of Juan Carlos Onetti, translated by Catherine Silver, published by Archipelago Press. Beautiful book just came, came out a while ago. So excited about this. And also we're celebrating the word of the speechless, Selected stories by Julio Ramon Riberio, edited and translated uh, from the Spanish by Catherine Silver, with an introduction by Alejandro Zambra, published by New York Review of Books. So for those of you that don't know, let me give you a quick background. Uh, Juan Carlos Onetti was uh, from Uruguay, and Julio Ramon Riberio was from Peru. Both were master storytellers that deserve a wider appreciation, you know. You never know how it goes with the Latin American authors that get translated. And for some reason, these two giants were sort of left over uh, to get picked out through later. But we're, we're so happy to have these, these books in translation now. So um, the release of these two new books is a literary event. And thanks goes out to both Archipelago Press and New York Review of Books for their ongoing championship of exceptional works. So a few words about our authors tonight that are going to be in conversation. Catherine Silver has translated more than 30 books, mostly of literature from the Americas. Her most recent and forthcoming translations include works by Maria Sonia Christoph, Julio Ramon Rivero, which is gonna be talked about tonight, Julio Cortazar, Daniel Sada, Horacio Castellanos Moya, and the great Cesar Araya and Pedro Lemimbel. She has received Numerous awards and prizes, including three national endowments for the arts translation fellowships. She was recently translator in residence at the University of Iowa and is the former director of the Banff Literary Translation Center. Also joining her tonight in conversation is Mauro Aver Cardenas, who is the author of the novel 
Afasia forthcoming from MS FSG in November. And he's also the author of The Revolutionaries Try Again, published by Coffeehouse Press. In 2017, the Hay Festival included him in Bogota 39, a selection of the best young Latin American novelists. It's such a pleasure to have both of these uh, authors here tonight in translation. So before I begin to gush about how much I love both of these authors, I'm just going to toss it over to them and let them start talking. All right. Good evening, Catherine and Mauro. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for City uh, uh, Lights for uh, having us. And uh, Kathy, uh, I know your work, I think going back to 2004, 16 years ago, uh, when you translated Senselessness by Horacio Casenos Moya. I think that was my first uh, book review ever. Um, 2007, I think. Yeah. I think it was but, yeah. And then uh, also, of course, the translation of uh, Daniel Sada, uh, Almost Never. Uh, which is, which is one of our favorite uh, books. So today we're gonna, um, just to set the stage, um, Katie and I have been talking, uh, exchanging ideas, questions, thoughts beforehand, uh, and we have a few of those prepared for you. We're gonna start with Onetti, and then we're gonna do uh, Julio um, Ribeiro, um, and then we'll take questions at the end. The, let's start with Onetti then. Um, as it was mentioned, Onetti, the influence of Onetti is wide-ranging in the Spanish-speaking world. My uh, edition of his collected stories, which is right here, um, has an adoring introduction by a Spanish writer, Antonio Munoz Molina, some of you might know him, uh, who writes uh, that four out of the five stories that we're going to be covering today uh, form part not only of my literary inheritance, he writes, but of my own life. They have kept me company. They have embittered me. They have helped me understand what I was seeing outside of the world of books, to know tenderness and be scared of desolation. I also happen to know that younger generations of Latin American writers are reading him actively. Recently, uh, the writer from Costa Rica, Carlos Fonseca, at the beginning of the pandemic, he had written to me uh, uh, with a quote from Onetti's A Brief Life, uh, I'll quote uh, that in its entirety. Uh, he said, Mundo loco, crazy world. So, uh, Katie, now thanks to you uh, and thanks to Archipelago Books, we have the complete stories available in English. If you wouldn't mind sharing with us how you came to read uh, Onetti, why did you decide uh, to translate uh, his complete stories? Um, so, I I came across Onetti's writing first when I was, oh, first of all, thank you all for being here and thank you City Lights and Archipelago and NYRB for organizing this. Um, it's so strange, but I guess I, we're all kind of getting used to this, oddly. So um, back to Onetti. Yes, I first read him when I was at university and in the late 70s, early 80s, and he was being read at that time. It was a little bit he was being read along with a lot of the boom writers, but um, I, I always had a special feeling about Onetti, um, and feeling is the right word because I, his work baffled me completely. It was very, very hard for me to grasp it, um, and yet I loved it. I loved the mystery of it. I loved the mood. I loved the atmosphere, um, and the difficulty seemed to be somewhat different than my difficulty with an author like Les Lima or Alejo Carpentier, where, who were more Baroque, and it was the vocabulary. Um, Onetti, that wasn't particularly the problem. It wasn't my Spanish. It was really about 
reading, how to read. And I feel like Onetti then and then again now, what I've translated him has sort of taught me how to be a better reader, um, a very careful reader, a very um, slow reader. You have to be a slow reader to read Onetti. Um, and then uh, Jill Schoolman of Archipelago Books and I had been talking for several years about doing a project together and we would trade ideas back and forth and they, it never quite was right for both of us. And she suddenly said, hey, how about Onetti's stories? At first it was gonna be a selection. Um, and I, would, I didn't hesitate. I immediately said, yes, I would love to do it. And um, yeah, so grateful. And, and, and then, yeah, at first scared to do the complete, not scared, but thinking, ah, and now I, I just saw the right decision. So hats off to Jill as usual. Great. Uh, since we only have an hour, I had asked uh, Kitty uh, ahead of time to uh, select five stories by Onetti so that we can dive a little deeper into those stories. The ones that she selected uh, for today are Montaigne, which is about a guy who throws a suicide party. Uh, the next one's called A Dream Come True, about a woman who wants to stage a very peculiar kind of dream. Uh, the third one is Most Dreaded Hell, about a man who receives terrible photographs from his ex. And my favorite, uh, Welcome Bob, uh, which is among other things about the joys of hate. And lastly, uh, The House of Sand, which is about what I'll call purgatory for now. We'll get uh, deeper into that story. Uh, we, in fact, we started earlier today talking about that one and we didn't, uh, we didn't finish. So the first story that we'll cover uh, is Montaigne. Uh, uh, Katie, you described the story to me as the more straightforward of the five and we thought this would be a good story to start because it will we'll compare and contrast it to some of the more advanced stories. Mm -hmm. so we're gonna read the opening paragraph uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about, about it a little bit more. I'm gonna read it in Spanish. For those who happen to have the same edition, it's on page 443, and then Katie will read the same uh, passage uh, in English. Um, I just want to say this is a little bit, there are several stories in this book that are kind of like, I hate to say, use this, but they're kind of chronicles of death foretold. So there's also another one, The Death and the Girl, where there's a crime but no victim um, or perpetrator, really. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and also just to say that Onetti's stories are different manifestations of mystery stories. They're all mysteries. Some, the mystery is never solved. It's all left open. Some, they're solved very neatly. Um, I would say that the mystery in this story, although very straightforward, is really, you don't understand the title till the very, very end. Um, so that's the mystery that it sort of pulls you through, like, why is this called Monkey? Okay. Um, we had all received the same message, the same unbelievable offer. And we were there, the six of us. And he was there, of course, because the gathering was at his apartment. Charlie's invitations, epistolary or by telephone, consisted of informing us that on Friday at seven in the evening, I don't want to ruin your Sunday, I will start to kill myself. Whoever fails me will be cursed because he won't have the opportunity to make amends. There will be abundant food and drink. Now in Spanish, uh, todos habíamos recibido el mismo mensaje, la misma oferta increíble, y allí estábamos. Éramos seis, y claro, él, porque la reunión era en su departamento. Las invitaciones de Charlie, epistolares o telefónicas, nos decían que el viernes a las siete de la tarde, no quiero estropearles el domingo, empezaré a suicidarme. Sea maldito el que me falte porque no tendrá oportunidad de enmienda. Hay comida abundante, beberaje. 
So Katie, what makes the story uh, straightforward? Well, as we discussed, you know, you have a narrative. It's announced at the beginning what's going to happen. And then the story plays out pretty straightforwardly. There's one narrator. Um, the time sequence is, uh, and I'm saying all these things because this does not happen in most Onetti stories or many Onetti stories. It does happen in some. Um, you know, time, it felt like one afternoon. We don't go, we have some flashbacks of memory of how this group, um, how they're connected. Um, and that's a little mysterious. It's a little vague, sort of, they all were lovers at one point with each other, whatever. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's, it's quite, it's, in that respect, it's pretty clear, except for the ending. And so it, there's a little twist at the end. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, what makes, uh, what makes it an ending story for you? Because for me, like when I was reading that story, like it, it I, I was, like you said, it falls very straightforwardly. A conflict was announced uh, at the beginning. Um, but then there's a switch at, this, at the end where mm -hmm. uh, the narrator uh, does something that you wouldn't expect in this kind of story because it's supposed to be a story about something very serious, the guys, I mean, suicide and so on. But something, you know, somewhat malevolent happens that, that at the end that, that to me made it an anti story. Was that your yes. experience as well? Yeah, and I think it, it, in, in this, story differently than others, but there's this way in which all of Onetti's narrators are quite uh, inconsistent. They're quite um, unreliable. Um, uh, they, yeah. And so in this case, when we discovered something about the narrator, we kind of rethink the whole story and how it was told. Um, so yeah, in that respect. There's also the, the more micro ways in which it's Onetti. The, the way he describes colors um, the, the way he describes character, um, with certain physical details um, that are very important. Um, he always is sort of transgressing um, in terms of gender and sexuality. There's a lot of that in Onetti, um, more than, it's uh, not talked about very much, but there's a lot um, of uh, gender and sexual transgression. And there's some of that here. Um, so, yeah, yeah. But Great. as I mentioned to you originally, this is a story that, almost could have been written by Ribeiro. So this is where there's an overlap, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's great. So now let's switch to talk about uh, Welcome Bob, uh, mm. my, my favorite uh, of the five that you selected. Now there's a, there's a sentence in the shipyard, one of Bonetti's novels that reads, uh, Enfrentar y retribuir el odio podía ser un sentido de la vida, which translates to, to confront and reward hate might be a meaning of life. Now I bring this up uh, not only to show that I actually read that novel, but as a prelude to my favorite of the five, uh, which has uh, where hate plays uh, multiple roles. Now we're gonna uh, we're gonna read a brief passage from this story, um, and then we're gonna sort of talk about the role of hate. A bit of context about the passage we're gonna read. Um, this story is told uh, as a memory, uh, but just for the sake of simplicity, the narrator. Uh, is dating Bob's sister, and this is the, the moment in which Bob finally confronts the narrator and says, you're not marrying my sister, and the narrator asks why, and this is the reply for those following in uh, the English version is uh, page 85. Okay, I, I am going to go a little bit before what you suggested, uh, just because <laughs> I think it's important in what we're going to talk about. So um, I'm going to start with... Um, so he says, if you wish to explain to me why you don't want me to marry her, I said slowly, then lean back against the wall. Directly I saw that 
I had never suspected how much or with how deep a resolve he hated me. His face was pale, his smile tight and fixed between his teeth and his lips. I'd have to divide it up into chapters, he said, and the night would never end. But it can be stated in two or three words. You are not going to marry her because you are old and she is young. I don't know if you are 30 or 40 and it doesn't matter, but you are a grown up man or rather a broken down one, like all men at your age who are not extraordinary. He said, sucking on his extinguished cigarette and looking out to the street then back at me. My head was pressed against the wall and still I waited. You probably have your own reasons to believe there's something extraordinary about you, to believe you have rescued something from the shipwreck, but it's not true. I lit a cigarette, turning my profile toward him. He was a nuisance, but I didn't believe him. He made me feel lukewarm hatred, but I was sure that nothing would make me doubt myself after having recognized my need to marry Ines. No, we were sitting at the same table and I was as clean and young as he. You might be wrong, I told him. If you would like to name something about me that's broken, no, no, he said quickly. I'm not that childish. I'm not going to play this game. You're selfish. You're a sensualist in a dirty way. You are attached to miserable things and those things control you. You're not going anywhere and you don't really want to. That's all, nothing else. You're old and she's young. I shouldn't even be thinking about her in your presence. And you expect to. Thank you. So now in Spanish, he says, Habría que dividirlo por capítulos, dijo. This is the response now. No terminaría en la noche. Pero se puede decir en dos o tres palabras. Usted no se va a casar con ella porque usted es viejo y ella es joven. No sé si usted tiene 30, 40 años, no importa. Pero usted es un hombre hecho, es decir, deshecho, como todos los hombres a su edad cuando no son extraordinarios. Chupó el cigarrillo apagado, miró hacia la calle y volvió a mirarme. Mi cabeza estaba apoyada contra la pared y seguía esperando. Claro que usted tiene motivos para creer en lo extraordinario suyo, creer que ha salvado muchas cosas del naufragio, pero no es cierto. Me puse a fumar de perfil a él. Me molestaba, pero no le creía. Me provocaba un tibio odio, pero yo estaba seguro de que nada me haría dudar de mí mismo después de haber conocido la necesidad de casarme con Inés. No, estábamos en la misma mesa y yo era tan limpio y tan joven como él. Usted puede equivocarse, le dije. Si usted quiere nombrar algo de lo que hay deshecho en mí. No, no, dijo rápidamente, no soy tan niño. No entro en este juego. Usted es egoísta. Es sensual de una manera sucia. Está atado a cosas miserables y son las cosas las que lo arrastran. No va a ninguna parte, no lo desea realmente. Es eso nada más. Usted es viejo y ella es joven. Ni siquiera debo pensar en ella frente a usted. Y usted pretende. So, Katie, in this passage, there is a very, I would say, straightforward kind of hate, which is that of Bob Tower, the narrator, wanting to marry um, his sister, but there is a number of other layers of hate that happen in this story. Would you mind sort of sharing with us a little bit about those uh, different kinds of hates? Well, the story has sort of two parts. So it's this part that happened in the past, and then we have the present where Bob has grown old and 
I don't want to, you have to buy the book. <laughs> I don't want to give it up. But um, Bob, uh, the, the narrator has an opportunity to see Bob in his degradation as an older person who has not fulfilled his wishes, who has failed. And failure is a big theme in Onetti as it is in Ribeiro. And it's very, very strong in this story, this sort of inevitable failure of age. Um, I, I, I feel a little differently. Um, I, I think the narrator never loved, you know, I mean, love, hate. I think Onetti deals a lot with these dualities and, and intertwines them. I think he, he, he writes about the hatred in the, inside love and love inside hatred and the passion. It's almost like the song, Odiame por piedad, right? So there's a passion in hatred that has to do with being connected um, and it's better than indifference. Um, so um, I, I think they're both in love with youth. And, and I think the narrator um, loves Inez. It doesn't love Inez. He never says he loves Inez. He says he recognized his need to marry her. It's it's an amazing portrayal of, of a completely narcissistic attachment, right? I never, all through, I kept looking at it in the translations, does he really, no, he never says that. Um, it's always, I recognize my need to marry her. So, um, and, and Bob's scorn for him is because he's old. There's no particular reason. And then his scorn for Bob, and Bob is that Bob has, is now old. And so he can sort of relish, the narrator can relish the fact that Bob is now old and failed. So, yeah, that's, but there is that, 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 I think in a lot of Onetti stories, one of the keys, and, and this is like in Most Dreaded Hell and Asad as She, which are two really quite painful stories. And it's, it, uh, they're both about what, what people do that looks a lot like hatred and is extremely cruel and somewhere it comes from love. Um, or what that is. It's, it's, it's like he does with gen, uh, gender. It's this, this mixing. I mean, there, he has a whole story where if somebody doesn't have a gender, it's, it's mixed. So um, yeah, he does that a lot with a lot of things, life and death and yeah. Not Cartesian. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a line, uh, I'll, I'll read it quickly in Spanish. You can read it to us in, uh, in English on page 49, uh, 89. Uh, it, this is a, still in the Welcome Bob story. Uh, Bob's already kind of in a ruined stage. They're in the same cafe. Uh, right. And the narrator says, Nadie amó a mujer alguna con la fuerza con que yo amo su ruinidad. Bob's ruinidad. Right. Su definitiva manera de estar hundido en la sucia vida de los hombres. Yeah. So, uh, nobody ever loved a woman with the force that I love his debasement. How definitively he has sunk into the filthy life of men. Nobody has been as enthralled by love as I am by his fleeting sorrows, the lackluster projects that a broken and faraway Bob sometimes recites to himself and that serve only to measure the precise extent to which he has been forever besmirched. And then this sentence, I don't know if I ever welcomed Inez with as much joy and love as I welcome Bob into the gloomy and malodorous world of adults on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were talking about earlier how you know one of the things that that struck me about reading Onetti uh, is that he has no qualms whatsoever to explore these emotions that we often call negative emotions he doesn't place any value judgment on these emotions in fact the fact that he doesn't play any value judgment 
allows him to, I wouldn't say rhapsodize, but explore at length a range of emotions that we, as readers, at least me as a reader, don't often get to encounter so openly and so deeply. I, I agree. And it, it does not fit into the sort of uh, positive thinking, happy ending world that some <laughs> of us live in. <laughs> That's right. Or <laughs> that so, dominates our culture. <laughs> yeah. So let's, uh, let's move on to uh, House of Sand, which is the story that uh, in a, our email exchange we wrote is the more advanced humanity story, time, narrative, perspective, or play with, basic comprehension, turns in in a word, word. Although we don't have time to deeply, deeply analyze the story, we thought it would be a good idea to kind of name a few things that are kind of features of this story, that are features of other works. Uh, and, and especially because this story was written in 1949, the same, uh, almost the same time as his novel, A Brief Life, which is the, the novel that starts the world of Santa Maria, it's a fictional world. Um, some of the features that uh, are fairly evident in the story is there's, there's tons of omissions, characters don't have a backstory, the narrative approach could be described as in search of a story as it is told. Um, we were talking about that we had a similar experience when uh, we read Onetti for the first time. When I read Onetti for the first time, I was completely bewildered. I didn't know what was happening. Um, and uh, are there any other features that we left out um, of the story? Well, the content's memory. You mentioned memory. I mean, the whole idea, the, the exploration of memory. And then we could, you know, maybe we'll touch on Proust and the influence of Proust on him later. But yeah, this, in a sense, the House of Sand is, is a, once I understood that this was actually a memory in Diaz Gray's mind as he's looking out his, the window of his office in Santa Maria where a lot happens in that office throughout Onetti. Um, once I understood that and how that, the, really the whole story is an exploration of memory, how it's condensed into one day even though it lasted longer. Um, and so I think that that's part of it too. I noticed in a few stories, like the, he started by saying, like, now that I'm ruined and old and have come to terms with the fact that I'm going to be all alone, uh, and then looks back to some moment, right, and expands it. Um, I think uh, the, oh, right. the Proustian, yeah. the, 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 the Proust uh, influence, I think is, you know, I had uh, brought a quote from uh, Juan Villoro that says something like, nothing farther that from Onethi than Proustian explorations, which I had interpreted as, you know, as a writer that I often, any excuse I have, I write about childhood. Um, Onethi doesn't do that. Uh, you know, oftentimes there is uh, clear openings for him to talk about childhood and he kind of, you know, purposely does not talk about the past, does not give sort of uh, a backstory to characters. Um, but your interpretation was a bit different. Would you mind sharing with that, the Proustian relationship? But can I, I'm not sure I'll remember what I said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was reading Proust at the same time I was translating Onetti, and I came across, I, I, I wish to God I were better at, at record keeping, note keeping, um, but I, I came across something in Onetti that was like identical to what I was reading in Proust. There was no way it wasn't just like very directly influenced. Um, I think Onetti, like any great, any significant writer, is an amalgam of influences. There's no direct line. Um, I think 
Proust did for Onetti, I think it opened him up, just like Joyce did. It really opened him up. There's a quote um, of, of uh, Onetti that says, um, if he were given a choice, if you were on a desert island and given a choice to bring all of Latin American literature or Proust, he'd take Proust. So <laughs> it says a little bit about the importance. I think it opened up for him possibilities. And actually, there are a lot of characters in Proust that don't have backstories. Albertine doesn't really have a backstory. Time is extremely elastic, um, you know, in, in Proust. You're never really sure how old Marcel is. He's oddly aged in a funny way. And time has a very strange thing. And I think, I think reading Proust really opened Onetti up. So that's sort of my, my sense of, of uh, what Proust did for him. Great. Thank you for that. Um, now we're going to switch to uh, Julio Ramon Ribeiro. Now, uh, my experience of uh, reading uh, Ribeiro right after reading uh, uh, Onetti, uh, it was quite a, a different style of narration. Uh, it's a bit more playful. Uh, the, the style uh, is a bit more lighthearted. Uh, there's even a story, uh, it's called the Insignia, where a character joins this, this secret group that I describe it as pathophysical in nature. There's some absurdity to, to this group. Uh, nevertheless, the, the, the themes, some of the themes are, are very similar, as you pointed out uh, earlier to me, the, 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 there's, there's loneliness, there's death, um, but the style becomes quite, quite different. Mm -hmm. Now, one uh, way to start talking about uh, uh, Ribeiro is just asking you the same question with Onetti, which is, um, how did you first come into contact with Rivero? I mean, what drew you to translate, uh, to translate him? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll try to make it short. It's a little bit of a longer story, and some of it's fun, but I'll try to make it short. I, I lived in Peru in the 80s. Um, I read Rivero when I lived there. Um, I then, I always knew, I always liked him, and uh, uh, then I got interested again in him. I think Horacio Castellanos Moya and, uh, uh, talked to me about Rivero and how much he loved him. He's one of Horacio's favorite writers. And I think that got me back interested. I, I translated a story. It was published in Words Without Borders. I kind of dropped that. Anyway, for a, a combination of fortuitous circumstances um, helped very much. And I want to mention his name just because I was given credit for editing this book. But actually, it, we, it was co-edited with Lorenzo Ribaldi, um, who is um, Ribeiro's Italian editor. Um, and it's published in La Nueva Frontiera in Italy. And, um, Lorenzo and I were both in, in Montreal. We went to have a drink and we started talking about Ribeiro. And anyway, it happened. It, it just happened. Edwin Frank was already looking at Ribeiro. And so we proposed it. And then we, we sort of collaborated on choosing, choosing the stories. Um, so I often think of Ribeiro as opposed to his more famous countrymen. Um, and, and they're sort of polar opposites. I mean, in every way that Ribeiro, it was shy and retiring and non-presumptuous um, uh, in every way that Ribeiro was a true poet in the sense that he did not try to make a career or, um, you know, Mario Vargas Llosa is the, is the opposite. Um, and um, yeah, so I think a part of Ribeiro's strength is his last lack of ego in his writing. His, he's so, he, and when you say lighthearted and playful, his stories can be very grim. I mean, both, both he and Onetti are very grim. But, you know, failure is a, is a given. We live, we fail, we die, you know. 
<laughs> I think they both read Beckett, a lot of Beckett too. So. <laughs> um, and it was the time of, it was the time of history, you know, maybe we're going to have more Beckett's um, now, but um, I think it's so uh, what we're going to talk about um, for smokers only, and I, I'm getting ahead of myself probably, but it's, you could call that autofiction in a certain way. Um, and I think part of the reason it works so well is that Ribeiro is so non, his ego's not in it. So he can just, he can separate himself from it and tell it and it can be about him, but it, it works so well. So, okay. Great, thank you. The, the uh, five stories uh, Ribeiro that you uh, selected were, the first one is was Smokers Only, which chronicles the smoker's life through all the cigarettes he has loved before. Silvio in El Rondal, about a lonely man who inherits property and doesn't know what his purpose in life is. A nocturnal adventure about a lonely man conned into physical labor late one night. Uh, the first snowfall about a lonely man whose acquaintance moves in with him little by little. And the last one, Nuit Caprense Sirius Illuminata. I'm sure that's how you pronounce it. About a reencounter with a, reencounter with a long lost love that may or may not have happened. Now, one way to talk about uh, some of the playfulness of Ribeiro's narrative style is by focusing on his lexical games in four Smokers only, the narrator plays a lexical game with the word marble. Um, and I'll read a quick passage and then I'll turn it over to Katie. How many Spanish words could be made out of the eight letters of Marlboro? Mar, lobo, malo, arbol, loma, olmo, amor, mono, orar, bolo, etc. Now the lexical uh, game continues. Katie, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us. Next passage. Page 179 for those in the uh, English edition. My lexical game grew richer. Broma, robar, rabo, hola, romo, burla, etc., etc. This might have been charming, but along with finding new words, I had new hemorrhages and new ambulances carried me to the hospital with sirens and horns, depositing me lifeless in front of the horrified eyes of Dr. Dupont. It could be said that the ambulance had become my most common form of transportation. Dr. Dupont always patched me up and returned me home after I swore I would quit smoking and after he threatened me that the next time he would forego palliatives and put me under the knife without a second thought. His threat left me undaunted as evidenced the third or fourth time I was hospitalized when I realized that in order to smoke, I didn't have to wait to be released. All I had to do was bribe a nurse to get her to buy me a pack of Marlboros, naturally. Lora, Orla, Ramo, Ropa, Paro, Proa, etc. I would hide in the closet or inside a shoe. Two or three times a day, I'd pull out a cigarette, lock myself in the bathroom, take several frantic puffs, and flush the rest down the toilet. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, one of the other lexical games that, that happened in a different story, Silvio Rosanda, uh, it takes a different turn the way that the lexical game is played. Uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about the function that game plays in that story? Well, this is a, a story about a, a, a man, a lonely man. He's not married. He has no family who lives in Lima, grew up, his father had a hardware store, Italian immigrants. And he inherits this uh, beautiful finca, this beautiful property in Tarma, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world that I've been, um, which is part of the reason I love this story. Um, I can see it. Um, and he, but he, he's always looking for, uh, he discovers, from a, from a tower in, on the property in the house, that there's a rose garden and he seems to see shapes in the rose garden. 
Um, and, and then he just gets obsessed with what these shapes mean. Um, and um, it's, I mean, I think we can talk about it as, you know, reading the world, reading life and trying to figure out life, trying to figure out the meaning of life. I mean, it's, it's fairly transparent what, what this means in this, in this case, right? Um, did you want me to read? Do we have time for me to read? Yeah, let's, uh, let's do that on page 144 in the English. Okay, so he has, he has seen that, that, that this, um, this rose garden spells out the letters R-E-S. Um, this was fun to translate also, um, by the way. <laughs> um, upon arrival, he sat down at his desk and once more wrote out the word res. As nothing came to mind, he reversed it and wrote ser. Immediately, he thought of the sentence, soy excesivamente rico, I am exceedingly wealthy. But this was obviously a false lead. He was not a wealthy man, much less exceedingly so. The hacienda gave him enough to live on, but only because he was single and frugal. He went back and studied the letters and came up with, serás enterrado rápidamente, you will be buried quickly, which gave him a start, despite it seeming like an unfounded prediction. He kept coming up with other sentences, flushing them out, sábado entrante reparage, to take notice next Saturday. Of what? Solo ensayando regresarás, only rehearsing will you return. Where to? Socrates envejeciendo rejuveneció. Socrates rejuvenated as he aged, which was a stupid and contradictory phrase. Sirio engendró rocío, a doubtfully poetic phrase, as well as being ambiguous, for he didn't know if it meant that the star Sirius or an inhabitant of Syria engendered dew. <laughs> there were an infinite number of sentences one could compose out of words beginning with these three letters. Silvio filled several pages of his notebook with sentences, including some as enigmatic and nonsensical as Salvate enfrentando rio, save yourself facing river. Sucedióle encontrar rupia, he happened to find a rupee. Or Sobate encarnizadamente rodilla, fiercely rub knee. All of which meant simply replacing one code for another. Thank you. Uh sort of talk about Nuit Caprense Sirius Illuminata. Uh, this was the story we were talking about earlier, the Montaigne story could have been written by Rivero, and then this is a story that could have been written by uh, Onetti. Um, do you mind spanning a little bit of that and sort of talking about some of the similarities, some of the differences um, about the two? Well, I, 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 dealing with Onetti, going back to Onetti, is a lot of his stories are puzzles. And they either are puzzles in the way that a, 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 a traditional um, murder mystery um, is a puzzle, um, or they're puzzles, more psychological puzzles. Um, and some of them are never resolved. And this is kind of a puzzle too. This story um, is basically, um, uh, a, yes, these, this, this, the man, the main character, um, runs in Capri. It takes place in Capri, which is kind of an interesting setting. And he runs into this woman who, and, and then we have a flashback of their relationship when they were quite young in Madrid, um, when he was a student. Um, it's also somewhat auto-fiction, um, very close to his own life. Um, and then it's this mystery. Did, did, did this encounter ever happen? And it's not unresolved. It remained, the, the, the reader remains sort of in this mysterious, almost magical or psychologically you know, uh, challenging space. Um, so in that respect, um, 
it's one of my favorite stories ever. I just think it's a brilliant, um, beautifully crafted, um, and beautifully conceived and executed story. Um, like a lot of Ribeiro stories. Um, yeah. When I when I reread it, because I was trying to figure out, like, did it happen? Did it not happen? And then obviously it's besides the point in a way, right. but how, you know, usually long lost uh, re-encounters uh, because of, of the passing of time uh, disappoint us mm -hmm. when they when they happen, uh, depending on how much time has passed. And, and this story, a lot of time has passed. And yet, in some places, he says, well, she seems like she's the same age. Like, she has any age, you know what I mean? So, like, there's some, it's almost like he's giving us this wish fulfillment, like, he's fulfilling our wish for this long lost encounter to actually be what we want it to be. Uh, and lets it, and plays with us to say, like, is it happening? Did that happen? But it's almost like a gift to us to say, you know, for once, I'm going to give you something that, that you want, which is this love, you know. This, yeah. this, this happy thing that happened uh, to him. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to uh, open it up now for, uh, for questions, since we have uh, around 13 minutes. Um, uh, for Michael Egan, uh, a question about Rivero. Who are the speechless to Rivero? Those are pride of, of words. Um, I, think, I think there's a, there's a class um, basis to that. They're the, the underprivileged, and you see that in some of his stories, like um, At the Foot of the Cliff. Um, it's, uh, also, his stories about Lima, um, the sort of the death, also uh, starving artists in Paris, um, uh, the, 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 the small shopkeeper who, who goes bankrupt. Um, they're the, the small people, the people um, who don't, yeah, who don't take, are never counted in history. Um, I think, um, and often they are poor and anonymous. And um, he, he wrote a lot of, he started writing in a time when um, in Peru, um, you know, sort of urbanization, a rise of a kind of very precarious middle class. Does an archipelago and YRB make the most beautiful books? Yes, they do. I just <laughs> love them. They're so gorgeous. grateful. They really so, so the next question here, uh, we have uh, uh, for uh, Juan Carlos Onetti, which novel do we read next? And do you guys have a reaction to Mauro Vargas's Losas book on Onetti, El Viaje a la Ficción? Uh, so I have that book here. <laughs> Perfect. Um, <laughs> this is high tech, Catherine. We, we get the bookshelves. You, I tell you, I had to find that Proust quote. It, I knew it was there, so I had to find it. Um, <laughs> next novel of Onetti, in a way, maybe a brief life, though I'm, I don't like that translation. It's Vida, La Vida Breve. I think it's more about this brief life or life is brief. It's really not talking about one brief life. It's saying that all life is brief. Um, so, and I think that's really an interesting book. I don't know how, I, I haven't looked at the translation. Um, it probably needs a new translation just because 50 years have gone by, not because the translation is bad. So um, I, I would kind of say that. I'm, I'm rereading it now and it's wild, really wild. Um, and what was the other part of the question? What do you think of uh, 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 Vargas Llosa's book on Onetti? I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a fan of Vargas Llosa's fiction, except for the, his first few books, um, very young books. But I do, I think he's a decent critic, and I think it's a good uh, primer. I don't agree with everything he says. I, um, I don't like the way he talks about Onetti's style very much. I forget the word he uses, but 
he kind of acts as if it's like overdone or something or like extra. Um, I don't see it that way, but um, I think it's a good introduction to Anetti. I have a question, Catherine. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, earlier I was gushing to you about how many of my favorite Latin American writers you've uh, translated. How do you pick who you translate? It, it's such an interesting group. I don't always pick them. I, I, my sort of the books I've done have been a combination of books I've um, proposed, like the Lemebel or like Saza, or, or either I've proposed them or publishers will hire me. Ira was something New Directions asked me to do. I didn't know about Ira before that. Um, or as in the case of Saza and with this, it was sort of collaborative with the editors. So Ethan Nassauski at Grey Wolf, and I also had been talking about who to, who to work on together. And we came up with Sava and the same with Jill. Um, so it's all these different ways kind of have to happen. Um, Horacio was somebody I, um, I, I proposed, but New Directions was already looking at him. And that often happens, there's a good synergy there that you know, I propose it to somebody who's already looking at it. So there are so many different factors deciding what, who gets translated, because that always fascinates me, some of the folks that get you know, because yeah. for me, for Onetti and, 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 and Rivero, I mean, this is folks that during that time just sort of got not, not forgotten, but they weren't, they just sort of got uh, left behind in the translation with all these other folks. And I think they got overshadowed by the boom. I think, I think, you know, I think the boom was a marketing phenomenon and these folks don't fit into a marketing, they're, they're, not, they're not brandable. Um, that's my humble opinion <laughs> about the boom and what, where these guys are. Um, but the writers sure knew they were there. And for the record, uh, Fred Pierce says that uh, agrees with you. Brief life definitely needs a new translation. So. Oh, okay. Tell that to an edit. Tell that to Jill. <laughs> <laughs> we have another question for you, for you uh, folks here. Are we going to? Uh, from uh, Charlie is asking, are we going to see a new translation of Salas Porque parece mentira la verdad nunca, se sabe, which is a such a beautiful title. Um, I don't think I'll do it. I just I don't have it in me. It's it's like translating Finnegan's Wake or something. I just, I don't have <laughs> I remember words. asking you on that one a long time ago too. That's right. I, I, I just feel like I've run out of words to say what other people want to say a little bit. And to that extent, it's a beast. It's, a, it's brilliant. It's probably not me. I hope somebody does it. <laughs> we didn't get to cover uh, all those stories. And we, um, I talked about Katie maybe reading from Onetti's story, the uh, A Dream Come True, uh, which we didn't touch on. So since we have a few more minutes, Katie, would you mind sharing a uh, reading from the opening of A Dream Come True? Yeah, sure. And because we chose this, it's one of, uh, another one of my favorite stories and it, we, we chose it for the title story. So A Dream Come True. Blanis invented the joke. He'd come by my office in the days when I had one and the cafe when things started going badly and I no longer had an office and standing on the rug, one fist leaning on the desk, his tie of pretty colors fastened to his shirt with a gold pin, and that head, square and shaved, his dark eyes unable to stay focused for more than a minute and promptly sagging, as if Blanis were on the verge of falling asleep or had remembered some pristine and sentimental moment in his life that he never could have had. That head, devoid of a single superfluous particle, silhouetted against this wall covered with portraits and posters, he would let me talk and then begin to form a circle with his lips. 
because you, of course, were ruined by Hamlet, or also. Yes, we know. You've always sacrificed yourself for art, and if it hadn't been for your passionate love for Hamlet. And I spent all those many years putting up with so many wretched people, authors and actors and actresses and theater owners and newspaper critics and their families, friends and lovers, and all that time losing and making money that God and I both knew I would necessarily lose again the following season. And that bead of water on that shaved head, that low blow to my ribs, that bittersweet draft, that taunt from blondness I never fully understood. Damn right, those insane lengths you went to out of your excessive love for Hamlet. If I'd asked him what he meant the first time, if I'd confessed to him that I knew as much about Hamlet as I knew how much money a farce would bring in after first reading it, the joke would have ended there. But I was afraid of the host of unborn jokes my question would evoke. So I only made a face and told him to get lost. And this is how I managed to live for 20 years without knowing what Hamlet was, without having read it, but knowing from the intention I could see in Blanus's face and the nodding of his head that Hamlet was art, pure art, great art. And also knowing because I had become imbued with it without realizing that it was also an actor or an actress in this case, always an actress with ridiculous hips, dressed in tight black garments, a skull, a cemetery, a duel, an act of revenge, a girl who drowns, and also William Shakespeare. He's so great. I, I can read these stories over and over, and each time I'm sort of stunned <laughs> by how amazing they are. Anyway. Well, that was wonderful. <laughs> Catherine, there, there's one last quick question for you. Uh, yeah. uh, we're being asked about any female Latin American authors that you would like to translate? Yeah, I just translated a wonderful female author. I translated two books by her, Maria Sonia Christoph, an Argentinian uh, author. The books were published by Transit Books. Uh, just recently, one's called Include Me Out, the other is False Calm. Include Me Out is a novel. False Calm is a chronica, sort of long form journalism, uh, travel journal. Uh, I. I'm sort of taking a break from translating right now. So I, there's no, uh, I'm, I, oh, excuse me. I'm translating a woman poet from Chile called Veronica Zondik, who I believe I just found a publisher for that, but I don't want to anticipate. So that's very exciting. It's a book length poem called Cold Fire about, it really about, it's Patagonia, wind, fire, all kinds of things. Pro I will only translate men I've already translated. I won't translate any more men. <laughs> Good, good. In Balance the back. Balance the back. Done. All right. All right. Well, both of you, thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure uh, hearing the two of you speak uh, about these two great authors. And um, again, thank you all uh, to the two of you for this. And uh, the audience, y'all, give, give them a round of applause. Silent applause with the hands. Let's do, do a little jazz hands for these two amazing authors. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.